Hey everybody, this is Phil, and things are nuts around our household. It's really hard for me and Ollie to sit down and watch a movie together as the school year is coming to an end. Ollie is getting ready for college, and, well, the school year is coming to an end. Like, literally, in these next two weeks, Ollie's got to do everything to... uh, clean up their senior year and tie up all those loose ends so sitting down to watch a movie is just a little bit outside of our abilities right now but as always i am not going to leave you guys hanging because we cannot get to the next ecstasy of influence film i'm going to take a look at another twitter recommendation from mr guillermo del toro in this episode which is a twitter so All right, so this week we are taking a look at The Red Shoes from 1948. Now, The Red Shoes is one of those movies that gets mentioned frequently in the same breath as films like Citizen Kane and The Seventh Seal, and it suffers because of that, because it is generally, like Citizen Kane and The Seventh Seal, thought of as a movie above and beyond movies, a movie that might be so heady and introspective and artsy that it's unenjoyable. It seems like one of those films that's supposed to be studied rather than appreciated. And like Citizen Kane and The Seventh Seal, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, you watch a movie like this and you are blown away by the cinematography, by the script, by the score, by the design, by the performances, but you're also touched and moved by the sheer humanity of it, by the sincerity, by the naturalistic style that permeates All of the artistic flourishes and choices. Nothing in the red shoes goes to waste. Every single object on screen, every single motion of the actor's hands, every single movement of the camera is precise and uses itself to further the story, to further the themes, and to further the character's arcs. Like, all of these characters begin in one place and end in another, and where they end is nothing short of tragedy, because it is tragedy. The Red Shoes from 1948 is based loosely on Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Red Shoes, which forms this sort of backdrop to the action. Like, The Red Shoes is acknowledged as a major plot in The Red Shoes. Uh, The story proper is... A weird love triangle between a ballet dancer, uh, her impresario, and the composer for the ballet, uh, for the ballet team. It's not a ballet team, the ballet company. Uh, But it's not a, it's not a typical love triangle. The impresario is not interested in the ballet dancer uh, romantically or sexually or physically at all. He is interested in her solely as an artist to the degree that he says it's impossible to be an artist and create real art and also have human connections, have a romantic life. And he demonstrates this by firing a, a ballet dancer when she decides to get married, even though she is her, she is the, the company's star attraction. And the relationship between the dancer and the composer is also uh, unusual in that it starts out very creatively and is never something that either of them seems completely comfortable with. So you have this Strange love triangle uh, at the heart of it, but also this fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen that illustrates the entire thing. But what is the Red Shoes? Why did it get created? Why did it? Why is it so famous? Uh, why is it so special? How did it change the film landscape? And what did Guillermo del Toro 
see in it? Why is Guillermo del Toro so obsessed with this movie? Why does he think it is as amazing as he thinks it is? Well, the movie was created by the writing and directing and production team known as the Archers. And uh, the Archers consisted of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Uh, they're British filmmakers, and uh, you may not—they may not be household names in America these days. But uh, Powell and Pressburger made a, a ton of incredibly famous, incredibly well-received, and award-winning films: uh, *The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp*, *Black Narcissus*, uh, *The Thief of Baghdad*, *Peeping Tom*, *A Matter of Life and Death*. Uh, just these amazing films that uh, themselves changed the way film was perceived and made. And Powell and Pressburger were uh, directors and writers and producers, uh, they, and they were known collect like together as the Archers. So you'll see like at the beginning of their films this like target, and then an arrow will hit it, and it says the Archers. And you knew with the Archers you were getting like these visions, these singular visions, in much the same way that a Guillermo del Toro movie, uh, you know you're getting his vision, even though he is a wonderful collaborator. He works with amazing artists. He brings in talent from around the world. You know that what you're seeing is all that artwork uh, focused to create his vision. And uh, the Archers were the same way. They worked within studios, but they made movies the way they wanted to make them. The only thing they did was they promised this movie will make money. Uh, They'd been planning on making this movie. Pressburger had written... uh, like an idea, an outline for it, like 10 years uh, previous. And it's loosely based, the original idea uh, was loosely based on something that happened in the Ballet Russe. Uh, there was a impresario who, uh, a Russian impresario named, uh, Dia- I'm going to totally massacre this name, Diaghilev, Diaghilev, I don't know how to say it, uh, who, uh, who fired his star, uh, Vaslav Nijinsky, who you may know is one of the most famous ballet dancers who ever lived, after he got married. So there was this kind of this uh, seed of an idea of, like, the story of Nijinsky, uh, the story of art versus love, art versus life, that had just sort of broiled around in Pressburger's head. But then he let it go. Uh, life got in the way, and he ended up making a bunch of other movies with, uh, with Powell. And then in the 1940s, uh, the idea came back. And it came back because the war had ended, and... You no longer had to make movies about the horror of war. Essentially, they decided to make a movie about the horror of art, about the horror of artistic life, of 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 instead of instead of giving your life and pouring out your blood for your for your country, now it's time to to think about pouring out your blood uh, just for the stage, for the sake of artistic expression. And that's kind of where art was going at the time. We're like, all right, like let's see, let's see what happens if we focus all of our energies on on this thing now. So the the, the story is incredible. Like every aspect of this movie is incredible. You're making a movie about ballet and they are like, you know what we can't do? We cannot populate this movie with actors. If we populate it entirely with actors, it's going to come across as, as phony. We're going to populate most of this movie with actual ballet dancers. And that could have been to its detriment. And instead it completely works in this movie. They got some of the most amazing dancers in the world to play some of the biggest leads in this film. And they all acquit themselves of this film, like, amazingly. Like, you would never know that these people were not regular film actors up to and including uh, Moira Shearer, who is essentially the lead. Uh, She comes in as this young British ballet dancer named uh, Vicky Page, who really wants to make it in this ballet company, and she auditions, and she kind of gets in, and she works her way up uh, through the ranks until she's finally made the star of the, sh- of the, of the 
ballet, the red shoes that they're doing. And Moira Shearer is so captivating and so naturalistic on screen. You cannot stop watching her. Uh, Every word that comes out of her mouth seems like she just walked in off the street and said it. You would not know that this was a woman who had no experience as a film actor. She was a dancer. She was an incredible dancer. Uh, Like, People like were just like, wow, like she's amazing. We want her for this film. And she essentially was this role. Uh, uh, the other lead is Anton Walbrook. There's three leads, but it's really about Moira Shearer as uh, Vicky Page and Anton Walbrook as Boris Lermontov, who's the impresario of his own of, of the ballet of Ballet Lermontov. Uh, and he is so perfect in this role. Lerm- uh, Lermontov could become the villain of the piece because he insists on uh, detachment. He insists on no romance. He insists on controlling this young ballet dancer. Uh, he is he is so borderline a villain. And yet, Walbrook imbues the character with so much pathos, uh, so much loneliness, so much sadness that you, you're sitting there the whole time just wondering, what what hurt you? Like, what is wrong? Why are you like this? But also, he is so honestly committed to creating beautiful art, to creating a wonderful ballet. And he has a great relationship with all of his artists. Like, he's not cold and distant. He's not wicked. He's not the brutal ruler of this ballet company. Everyone genuinely seems to like him, even if they think he's being unreasonable. I guess what I'm saying is his actions never come across as abusive. And even though actions should never come across as abusive, in the wrong hands, this character would. I mean, he is He's not a great guy, but you get where he's coming from, even though he's so much of a mystery. And there's a reason that this movie is said to have a lot of gay subtext, especially for 1948, because because you don't see him uh, with romantic designs on Vicky Page, you know that he's not romantically interested in her. And there is a, a an archness and a distance that uh, at the time uh, was frequently read as coding for a gay character. And I believe that Anton Walbrook himself might have, I believe he was gay. And so that also informs the choices that he makes as an actor. It's a brilliantly subtle performance. And on the other end is uh, Marius Goring as Julian Craster, who is the uh, the conductor, the composer for the whole piece. And we start off actually uh, with him as a character, as a young man just uh, in music school, when he realizes that his music has been stolen by his own professor and is being used by the ballet company. And he takes this to... Uh, to Lermontov and it's like, look, you stole the, this music is stolen. Here, I'll show you. I'm going to play you my piece, and you can compare. And Lermontov is like, this gets good, and he kind of runs him through the ringer. He puts him through his paces to see if he's good enough. He has him rewrite some some of the music for the ballet that he doesn't think is good enough, and then finally he just has him rewrite an entire ballet, and then ultimately he's like, just write me a ballet. And so Craster is never he's never diminished as an artist, and that's what I what I really like. Lermontov is controlling. Uh, but he would never diminish an artist's abilities. Later on, he does, like, once Vicky and Craster get involved in a relationship, he does, you know, like, put them down uh, as creators. But you can tell that even his lies about their their abilities are hurting him because he doesn't want 
to diminish the the talents that he has in his own company. Uh, but they aren't the only ones uh, who stand out in this movie. Like, they're, uh, like Moira Shearer, Anton Walbrook, and Marius Goring, if those three had been the, the just the three strong performances in the film, you'd have an amazing film. But you also have uh, Robert Heltman, uh, Leonid Massin, and Ludmilla, I'm going to screw up her name, uh, Cherina, who were dancers in their own right, um, and who have substantial parts in this movie. Uh, so you have uh, you have uh, Leonid Massin and Robert Heltman. Uh, Robert Heltman plays the uh, the uh, uh, lead dancer in the movie, but he was also a, a choreographer who choreographed all the dances in this movies. These guys were major ballet dancers, I believe, with the ballet Russe themselves. And again, you would never know that these guys were not just regular film stars. Like, they just come across as completely at ease on stage. Ludmilla Chirina as Irina Boronskaya is phenomenal in her role. She doesn't have a huge part, but every time she's on stage, you're captivated by this woman. And I think it says a lot. When you have incredible artists working with you, whether they are dancers, whether they are writers, whether they are uh, monologists, poets, whatever, there is... There is a commitment to the craft that comes through no matter what they're doing artistically. They are still – they know how to tell a story with their bodies. They know how to occupy space. That's the most amazing thing about dance. I've – in the last like 10 years of my life, I have watched more dance than I ever watched in my life. I'm uh, partners with a woman who uh, does a lot of dance. She is a dancer. And uh, having seen dance now, like up close and personal, you realize that uh, so much of what a dancer is capable of doing is is take command of the very air around them, is is manipulate the space that they're in uh, with the, just with the movements of their bodies. And that when you fill a screen with actual ballet dancers, with actual dancers, uh, everything they do is meant to convey who they are, what they're, what they're doing, what their objectives are. And you can just watch them do that. And so when you, when you see the rehearsals of the ballet, you're watching real ballet rehearsals. When you see their classes, uh, you're watching real dancers take ballet class. And it, and it reads as so, so real, even though each dancer on screen is operating in this hyper, uh, hyper uh, amplified, uh, almost almost cartoonish acting style because they're still being ballet dancers. And that's the next thing I want to get to in The Red Shoes. So uh, Vic- Vicky Page gets cast as the lead in this ballet they're doing of The Red Shoes. And she is phenomenal. She's a knockout. And the main set piece of the movie, in the middle of the movie, is a 15-minute ballet of the Red Shoes. You see the entire ballet. Uh, sort of, So what happens is it begins on stage. It's very stage-bound. It looks like you're looking at a professionally shot uh, production of a ballet. It's, and it's beautifully well done. The set design is gorgeous. The costume designs are gorgeous. You know exactly what's going on. But then... At some point in the actual ballet, uh, it breaks with reality, and it becomes a fantasy sequence. It's still danced, but you suddenly start realizing that it is kind of – it's Vicky's 
subconscious coloring what she's doing. So characters uh, flip in and out of reality. She flies through the air. She ends up in these vistas that are impossible to be stage bound. Uh, You're suddenly on a huge soundstage. Suddenly she's flying. Suddenly she's dancing with a man made out of paper. Uh, Suddenly Craster is there on stage, almost dancing with her, but then he flips back to the character. It goes around and around like this for 15 minutes. It is dizzying. It is colorful. It is gorgeous and beautiful and it inspired so many movies after it that's one of the reasons that the red shoes is held up as this pinnacle of filmmaking besides the fact that it is just a knockout film to watch uh, it also changed the way uh film was used to tell stories because after this you had an american in paris uh you had singing in the rain you had movie musicals that were like oh wait we can stop the action and comment on the characters using dance. Like that's allowed now. Like we can actually do that. And that's where the red shoes really comes into its own is that it is a dance movie. It's not just a movie about dance. It is a movie that uses dance uh, perfectly. Think of the movie uh, once, which is a movie about music, but it's really a music movie. It just doesn't. It doesn't just tell the story of musicians. It uses their art to to carry their arcs forward, to carry their characters forward. It's not a musical per se, in that all the music is is within the context of the film. It's not. They're not suddenly breaking reality to sing songs, but they're breaking naturalism to use the music to further the story. Like, and the music is intertwined with the action. Even when there is no, nothing being sung, you, the music is still a part of the story. It, 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 it influences the beats of the film. It influences the feeling of the film, even the visual of the film, once is permeated by its own music. And Red Shoes is exactly the same way. Even when there's no dancing going on, you're still in a dance movie. You're, you're still watching dance on screen and nothing like this had ever been done before this had never been it had never been married in this way on screen before Uh, you take the dancing away you change one element of this film and uh and it all it would all fall apart like every single thing in this movie works uh perfectly so i i called out robert helpman who was the uh the choreographer um the shoemaker in The Red Shoes is played by Leonid Massine, who is brilliant and creepy and did his own choreography for that. Uh, just everything is wonderful. <laughs> everything works out so well. and But we never lose sight of the fact that the story of The Red Shoes is about a woman who gets a pair of red shoes that cause her to dance to her death. And, I mean, spoiler alert. That's what happens at the end of this film. I'm not going to, you know, totally tell you how it happens, but you're dealing with a movie called The Red Shoes. Uh, the film itself is a fantasy. It's a tragedy. It's uh, it's borderline horror. Uh, when you watch a movie like uh, The Black Swan, uh, Black Swan, or uh, or the new uh, Suspiria, you're watching horror films that use ballet as a metaphor for the horror going on on screen. Uh, Suspiria comes closest. Uh, Suspiria isn't just ballet. It's it's like modern dance and such. But uh, Suspiria comes closest, honestly, to the feel of the red shoes in that dance is an integral part of, of the horror going on. And the red shoes, though not a horror film... Uh, has elements of horror within it, psychological horror, torment. In fact, uh, there's a great article on uh, Criterion.com uh, called Is the Red Shoes 
a film noir by Imogen Sarah Smith. And I would highly recommend reading it because once I, I, I just read the title of the article before I read the whole article and I was like, Oh, now we've covered film noir on this podcast before. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of brute force in specific where it didn't have all the trappings that you think of with noir, but instead it reminds you, and the article is The Red Shoes of Film Noir reminds us all that noir isn't a genre. It is a, it is a milieu. It is a style. It is a, it is a way of conveying uh, information. It's more a philosophy than a genre. And The Red Shoes definitely has that fatalistic quality of noir, That's these, that sense of broken people functioning brokenly in the world, that sense that no matter what you do, nothing is ever going to go right, and the best you can do is just try to live life as passionately as possible before the hammer inevitably falls, and boy does the hammer fall. And like I said at the beginning, if it wasn't for the amazing performances, this would fall apart. If it wasn't for the phenomenal direction by Michael Power and Emmerich Pressburger, this would fall apart. But not just that. The cinematography by Jack Cardiff. Cardiff's camera moves through this movie like uh, like a creature on the hunt. It is just it's, – it's right up there in characters' faces, and it knows when to pull back. It knows when to just dazzle you with, uh, with the size and the scope of the film, and it knows when to pull in really close and just – Get you right in the gut. Just incredible. Edited by Reginald Mills. Just phenomenal. And I cannot, cannot, cannot go without mentioning the music by Brian Easdale. Brian Easdale's music functions as ballet music throughout the entire film. And if you've ever watched a ballet, if you know anything about, if you know anything about dance on stage, you realize that you are being carried through this movie from beginning to end, from overture to the... The last part, I don't know what the, the, the opposite of an overture is, by Easdale's music. It is gorgeous and lush and unlike any other film music of the time. It functions as ballet music, even when you're not watching ballet. Uh, this whole movie is a dance. It is a dance, and it is a delight. It is highly recommended. And I wonder what the man himself had to say Uh about this movie. What did Guillermo del Toro have to say about The Red Shoes? Well, he hasn't said a whole lot, but he does say there is no film like The Red Shoes. And people have been quick to point out that much of the production design in movies like The Shape of Water in specific are directly influenced by The Red Shoes. In fact, The Shape of Water does the thing that The Red Shoes does. It takes a, not a break, it seamlessly evolves into a dance film at times. Uh, and becomes what the red shoes is. Uh, the Shape of Water also uses movement in a way that Del Toro's other films have touched on. I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of Crimson Peak. I'm thinking of Pacific Rim, even in the movement of the robots. Uh, but Shape of Water uses a, a, a specific dance style with uh, with the main characters that is gorgeous and lush and. Very similar to The Red Shoes. It has a tragic feeling like The Red Shoes uh, between its three main characters. It has a an otherworldly quality. You feel like you're watching a movie that is set in our world, but is set just outside of our world. I don't know how else to describe it. Also, it is about an impresario. It is about a man in charge of his art, 
but who knows that he cannot create the art by himself and needs people who are devoted to him. And you, when you read about the creation of Guillermo del Toro's movies, you read about this constant tug of war he has with his artists, uh, people he respects, people he uh, deeply connects with on, on, on emotional and personal levels, but also the detachment he needs to say no, to say this doesn't work, to say we've worked together, but this isn't working anymore. Uh, I need to make sure this, that my ultimate vision is, is, it makes it to the screen. And the impresario in the red shoes is the same way. He will let a person go uh, because what they're doing is at odds with what he needs to show up on stage on opening night. Uh, and also, Guillermo Toro just... He loves a lush movie. He loves a movie that it just loves being a movie that can exist only on the screen because it is solely a film to be watched and appreciated, which leads me to the the hilarious, I mean, not even hilarious, just the, 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 the what? Uh, idea of the fact that uh, The Red Shoes has been adapted to stage twice, uh, once as a musical and once in the recent years as a ballet. So it all came full circle. Uh, the Red Shoes musical didn't do that well. This was, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, I remember it coming and kind of being a thing and then going. It wasn't supposed to be very good except for the dance. Uh, but the ballet that happened uh, not too long ago, which is a very much a retelling of of the film, the film, the film, uh, did very well and was very well received. And uh, so, you know, like art, uh, good art complements other good art and dance and film, acting and music. They all work together. They can all work together uh, in different uh, combinations, and different variations to create a, a satisfying whole. And The Red Shoes is that lush, beautiful, terribly tragic, uh, beautifully acted, beautifully directed, satisfying whole. I highly, highly highly recommend if you haven't seen it take a look at it uh the criterion collection of course has a beautiful transfer of the red shoes uh get your hands on it uh add it to your collection and check out the other films of the archers they're all good and thank you so much for listening to this uh twitter sewed uh here on uh it's del toro time i'll be back later with another twitter sewed as we continue trying to get ollie out of high school and into college thanks for listening uh, I'll see you next time when it's uh, Delta time.